Hey folks, welcome to this week's episode of Big Shiny Takes, a show where we take a look at the worst newspaper columns of the past week, from a Canadian perspective, mostly. I'm joined by uh, Eric Wickham. Hello, Marino. That was uh, the classiest intro we've had so far. Thank you. Yeah, I really channeled my inner NPR sort of person (laughs) or something. It felt like uh, an episode of Lovers and Other Strangers. It was great. <laughs> yeah, I've really evolved from my, I've really evolved from my uh, J school days of emulating Peter Mansbridge to now emulating some sort of like I don't know '90s sitcom era idea of a radio person. Uh, you you and, sound uh, just like Terry Gross. Eric, uh, how are you this week? I'm doing great, Marino. Thanks for asking. <laughs> there we go. Um, I'm also doing great. We're all doing great. We agree. Um, I hope your weeks uh, actually went well and you weren't just saying that to get past uh, the small talk part of our podcast. But we have some things to talk about today. We do. Um, And I guess to start things off, we have spent each episode now critiquing and ridiculing various newspaper columnists throughout the country, but there is one thread tying them together. And that is thus far (laughs) all of the shitty takes we've been dunking on are brought to you by Mary Brown's chicken. (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking about post media, which thinks to the good folks at Mary Brown's Chicken will be delivering their takes and reporting that they still do to you free of charge. That's the Mary that's the Mary Brown's promise. So why 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 do we single out post media? I mean there are bad takes you read in other publications all the time in Canada. Globe and Mail has its fair share the star is Rosie DeMano. Why post media? Well, I mean, there's there's a ton of reasons. Uh, I think first and foremost, uh, there's so many newspapers that fall under the post media banner that employ awful columnists. Um, but it, I got to be honest, there's way more to it than that, right? Marino, why do you think we've talked about post media so much? What does post media mean to you? Oh, jeez. An overwhelming, oppressive presence that is kind of like a cancer <laughs> to the journalism industry. I, it's terrible, but it, 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 it doesn't allow room for any real independent reporting when they own so many community newspapers and everything <clears throat> and just have just such reach to propagate such... Clearly, like, just almost factory, going back to the Mary Brown's metaphor, like, it's like a bad take factory where there's, like, certain tropes of bad ideas, and it's all just, like, a large-scale manufacturing consent mind game that is very depressing, and they're like, we we just want to bring, you just want to bring that down. 
Yeah, like you you brought up a great point that they have so many papers. I actually I went on their website mm-hmm. and started counting the amount of brands that they own and how many community based newspapers they have. And uh, I mean, up until today, they owned over a hundred newspapers across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and as today has shown, they're complicit in killing local journalism in a ton of small towns across the country. On top of that. They take millions of dollars in taxpayer money in the form of a media bailout. I've seen stories where the number is anywhere from six million to about ten million, depending on who you ask, right? And don't they still like fire a bunch of their journalists and stuff? Yes. Yeah, it happened today. Fifteen papers shut down. <laughs> Candeland has done a lot of good reporting on this, and I think that they're pretty much the only outlet to have done so. And so Sean Craig had a piece um, last year that went at great length to talk about this centralized push by post-media management to make the National Post, it's, you know, not marquee brand across the country, and the other papers it owns, like the Edmonton Journal and Calgary Herald and Ottawa Citizen, to become more, quote unquote, reliably conservative. (laughs) Now, you may be asking yourself, how is it possible for the National Post to be more conservative? Well, in 2018, President Andrew McLeod met with National Post editors to tell them to toe the conservative party line more because although their editorial positions are to the right of center, some of their columnists like Andrew Coyne, who's no longer with them or say Don Braid at the Calgary Herald don't always toe the line. So they need to be put back in line. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this wasn't, This was, you know, a significant development. And the story Sean Craig did is based on interviews with like 30 former post-media employees. Um, So we know that the company already forced all its newspapers to endorse conservative parties in 2015 in Alberta and federal elections. And then, of course, last year in the Alberta and federal elections. And in any event... The company forced all its papers to endorse the Tories, even against their will, uh, like the Edmonton Journal, which whose editor at time, Mark Ipe, he uh, wouldn't fall in line, didn't want to run these editorials that were written at head office in Toronto and transplanted into Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And eventually they forced him out. Uh, If you're listening, Mark, you should come on the pod and (laughs) tell us about your time with Post Media. But anyways, the company brought in Kevin Lieben to enforce the will of the conservative party at Post Media. Now, Kevin Lieben, he's, he's like a typical company man. But on the surface, but 
he went all out against the 2017 unionization drive at the National Post. Uh, one com- The company flew him out from Calgary to, quote unquote, walk up and down the halls for extra intimidation. One source <laughs> told what a Tenari- <laughs> No, no, no. It gets better. It gets better. Dig this. He showed up at a farewell party for staff that were laid off to talk to people about why unions are bad. Oh, my God. And, and this was reported by Tanara Yellen, also in Canada Land, uh, in 2018. <laughs> and so you see, with, with management imposing the iron fist of the Conservative Party, there's this culture of fear at post-media publications that Sean Craig, in his piece from last year, outlines in depth. And, and there's this one quote from there that I think says a lot. Not one staffer would speak on the record, almost universally due to fear of reprisal from management. Write that in your story, said a senior employee. That says it all. Everyone is afraid to talk. Jesus Christ. And it's like, like, so I guess like, long story short why we pick on post media and post media columnists is like the company sucks yeah it's like everything that leads people to mistrust the media you can find at post media papers yeah i mean the thing that really bothers me about them i mean beyond them publishing just like just being like a uh a complete <laughs> a complete meat grinder that just chucks out horrible takes uh by the pound um they own so many community papers across the country and they use them as kindling anytime that their sales drop below a certain number i mean it's it's sort of the sad story about community media in this country but like if you're if you work for a paper that's owned by a company that is not based in your town, like you're going to be on the chopping block eventually, unless things turn around. Um, I mean, I worked in radio, so I mean, things, things have been bad there for a long time, but I worked in a small market station. It was like 6,000 people. And the station was owned by a company with like 40 stations across the country. So like not Rogers or bell or chorus. Um, and their big thing was like, we care about the community we're in. But like my boss didn't work in town. I never met my boss's boss in person and like nobody cared. It was extra revenue to them. And it's like, that's what those community papers are to post media, in my opinion. Right. And they can also launder their awful takes across the uh, post media network. Yeah. And syndication. I believe they're calling. Yeah. Which. I think leads us to the main subject of tonight's episode. Uh, Post Media had uh, had quite a day today, which is uh, <laughs> April twenty eighth. I believe it's Monday. It's Monday, right? It's Tuesday. Tuesday. <laughs> oh, that uh, that wasn't a joke. I actually thought it was Monday. Just uh... Tuesday, April twenty eighth. What what's been happening on Twitter? 
Oh my god. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> No, go ahead. I mean, there has been a, a human dog pile on a a columnist employed by Post Media, uh a man by the name of John Iveson, and he wrote a column. And let me just read the headline to you cuz it is just <laughs> it, it, it's terrible. Um Trudeau's lavish handouts risk turning workers into welfare slackers. Um, gentlemen, uh, how does that headline make you feel? It's like a breath of fresh air. <laughs> <laughs> finally, finally, someone is standing up to big welfare. <laughs> but I think we should talk a bit about who is this John Ivison? Iveson is what we agreed on. Right? Yeah, we agreed on Iveson. It's weird. So you, who is this? Who is this guy? You know what? The, the strange thing is, is I don't know if I've ever read any of his columns and had the same visceral reaction that I did to the one that he published today. Um, yeah, no, that's that's the thing. His columns are mostly inoffensive like center right just calling balls and strikes he criticizes all the parties but i think sometimes he steps out of line and (laughs) and this is just purely speculation purely but then he knows what his boss is like and he comes out swinging well, this is a swing. And, oh yeah, I was gonna say yeah. this is a this is a line drive, man. It's um, I would say it's a foul ball because <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a rather foul take. But but anyways, uh, he wrote this banger uh, in February. I'm just gonna read you the headline: Millennial eco activists stopping trains are the new colonialists. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that John Iveson is Scottish. He really has his finger on the pulse of the urgent issues. Yeah, well, he's like Post Media's marquee yes. federal and Ontario politics columnist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But also, um, a large number of the, the protesters that were stopping trains in February, um, were they not indigenous people? Yeah, but they weren't from that specific. And <laughs> but they're <laughs> colonialists now, right? It, it doesn't, yeah, <laughs> that's how it works. But, Christ. So, shall we, shall we get to the piece? Yeah, let, let me do the honors, unless you would really like to. No, you, you go for it, Eric. Oh, that's all right. I've been practicing reading a lot. Yeah, baby. The first rule of opposition politics is to draw contrasts with the government in the most extreme manner possible. Is it? I don't know. <laughs> Pierre Polivar is so wed to the game plan, he adhered to it even when he was a minister. Okay, so like, a, <laughs> first, first two lines. Like... He makes up a thing about what opposition politics is supposed to be. And the second one, his his golden knight, his knight in shining armor is Pierre Polivare. 
On Sunday, the conservative finance critic accused the liberals of engaging in a giant experiment in Freakonomics, <laughs> the study of incentives to figure out behavior. Okay. <laughs> did, did you did you see that presser? Um, with uh, with Pierre? No, no. Tell us about it. It was um, it was very much what you would expect. Goofball, yeah. Yeah, he sucks. Um, and he constantly makes himself look like an ass, um, which is probably why I skipped his presser, which is, I mean, bad move on my part. But I didn't think he was going to be mentioned in a column on uh, on Tuesday morning. Otherwise, I would have watched it and had a giggle. Um, okay, cool. So he said, and he's, Iveson's referring to Paul Iver, or Paul Iver. How do I say that? Let's just say Paul Iver. It's easier. Okay, Paul Iver. Okay. He said the government's emergency benefits package is having the opposite impact to its intended effect, acting not as a stimulus to economic activity, but as a tranquilizer by punishing people for working. He offered the examples of students and minimum wage workers who have been banned from working by generous but inflexible benefits. Uh, I, I don't um, think that's why what? they're banned from working. <laughs> it's, it's just... It's so, so stupid. And it looks like, like, this is the, the idea that he's building this entire take around. It's like, first of all, I don't know anybody who's like, you know what? I would rather, I would rather be on, on, uh, on this generous, um, benefits that the government is offering. I like, I know a ton of people that are are hoping that they get the benefit because they've been temporarily laid off and they want to be able to pay rent because rent has not been canceled. Um, but like who it should be? Yeah, it should be. It a hundred percent should be. But also like, who are these people that are tranquilized by living the high life off of $2,000 a month? Who are these people? Well, you know, they're um, welfare Queens. <laughs> you know like, buy buy like big screen tvs and rims with their welfare money but he's writing for the welfare queen like the national post takes six to ten million dollars of taxpayer money a year and still manages to close newspaper outlets every yeah. year like what who's <laughs> The gall of this newspaper to have these words in them. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, Andrew McLeod, the president of Post Media, uh, Kevin Leibin. These guys are all such welfare queens. Like, they're the biggest. <laughs> they're the biggest welfare recipients in the country. Uh, except, like, I guess the oil companies yeah, yeah. be bigger and uh you know bombardier but uh, they're up there they're they're they should be taken off welfare yeah well like this this is just like pure like unadulterated proof that bailing out post media is a mistake because they write shit like this and then they pretend that you know this is like a nuanced take polivare may have embroidered here and embellished there but he's not wrong yes he is and yes, he did. He did embroider and embellish. How can you be right while embroidering and embellishing? <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, he's he's right. He just lied. Yeah, like he's totally <laughs> full of shit, has no clue what he's talking about, <laughs> is just responding to fear mongering in a time of crisis 
He's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this guy's a fucking idiot, but he's right. <laughs> yeah, you should take him very seriously. And I'm going to explain to you why. <laughs> okay, so uh, so the next entire bit <laughs> is all CD how um um PR like this this reads like a boilerplate for the CD how Institute. So I don't who, know how who used to uh, uh, CD how used to employ uh, finance minister Bill Morneau. Let that be known. Hmm. Okay, so a new report by a working group of some of Canada's best economic thinkers at the C.D. Howe Institute revealed a similar, if more soberly expressed, disquiet with the way the government has responded to the crash in household income. Do you want to you know what they found? Not really. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> nope. <laughs> this is the part where we skip. But the group's concerns were reflected in its recommendation that the program should be gradually wound down. They're talking about CURB. Um, rather than expanded to fill in remaining gaps. Niche populations currently not covered by CURB should be addressed by temporary provincial programs, it said. That's good. Good. Don't fill in gaps, right? Right? Yeah. I mean, you have to keep people at their utmost powerlessness yeah in order to get them to continue coming up to the shitty job they hate every day (laughs) i just i love the idea that hey you know what the government should be helping less people (laughs) like that's that's the idea that they came up with and like but the economy (laughs) yeah literally that's like i think that that is the that is their findings that's that's the take. That's absolutely yeah. it. About the economy. So, anyways, <laughs> no one cares about the economy. It's fake. People, it's, though, are real. And yes. I've heard I've heard a rumor that um, we live in a society. Have you guys heard this? <laughs> I hear people on the internet talking about it all the time. Allegedly. But, ha- have you read it? Yeah, I've read, read it, it. But I mean, Margaret Thatcher says society doesn't exist. So, I mean, who am I supposed to believe? <laughs> it's true one side <laughs> says it does the other side says it doesn't maybe both are right let's let's have them both on to talk about it so the working group report suggested there's already anecdotal evidence that some people on curb have refused to go back to work when employment opportunities have arisen um sorry it, every time you pronounce it curb and not serb i just hear the curb your enthusiasm <laughs> <laughs> that's intentional um yeah. you are larry david in this <laughs> because it's, it's more, more than one more than one scenario um do, should i say sir would it make you feel better no it's cool just call it <laughs> okay i wasn't I like complaining i was just uh, observing okay thank you um yeah but again he's he's like there's already anecdotal evidence that some people have not taken jobs so we have to cancel it or we should wind it down. Yeah. Sorry, I shouldn't put words in his mouth. Yes. Uh, he says that anecdotal evidence <laughs> means we yeah. should get rid of this program eventually. Mm-hmm. So, like, literally nothing. Yeah. Like, the hard he data of someone <laughs> saying something. <laughs> yeah, just like some guy says it's not working. But, but it's that similar innuendo that they did 
with the welfare queen rhetoric in the 1980s. Yeah. You know, Reagan and Thatcher and Mulroney. But like, I, I want to say that it, it's way less effective when you think of like anecdotal evidence when everyone's stuck inside. Like who, who are they talking to? What Zoom meeting are they having yeah. where, where <laughs> this is the topic of conversation? <laughs> like someone's nephew <laughs> turning down a job. Yeah. And they're like, oh, that's proof enough. We got to get rid of this program. <laughs> I know what I'm writing you, about. You notice that in a lot of post-media columns that they make these claims mm-hmm. with, like, nothing to back them up. Now, conservatives love creating these, like, invented scenarios. These, like, little thought experiments that they use to get themselves mad. Whereas, I don't know, leftists are mad at very real power structure things like i don't know a corporation that owns basically all the newspapers in the country but i uh, that'll that would never happen <laughs> no no canada <laughs> canada's never. fucking great we're not america so we're great and flawless like the media industry down there is not good but at least they have a pro publica at least they have like a night center at least they have npr and they actually have you like mm, listener supported media well and, and with all the glaring flaws of the new york times they are one of the few legacy newspapers that are turning a profit in this time. So there, there's some hope and danger in that regard. Yeah. Well, you know what? The I can say as a benefit of the New York Times now is they don't cannibalize local papers in northwestern mm-hmm. Ontario to keep the lights on in their their main office. Exactly. Um, okay. Back to the piece. A similar disincentive to working exists for post-secondary students who stand to receive $1,250 a month between May and August. On oh, the, the, man, the, the man is going sicko mode. No <laughs> section of underserved fucking like have to pay your tuition. <laughs> Classes are going online. Nah, fuck you. You. <laughs> Um, yeah. So, so back to the piece, uh, as the parent of an 18 year old, I would have preferred the government devoted all its resources to the Canada student service grants, which promises up to $5,000 to support student education costs for those who take part in national service activities. Is it too cynical to suggest that the Canada emergency student benefit will be fully subscribed and the student service grants underutilized? I don't know, John. Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah those seem like questions that you could as a journalist uh, try and find answers someone who knows no why are you asking the public pick up the phone bud um back to the piece the working group professed itself surprised at the sheer number of applicants for the curb 6.73 6.73 million canadians or more than 35 percent of the labor force why why are whoa like that's a lot of people yes however there's a lot of people out of work (laughs) why are you surprised that the amount of unemployed people are i think he's i think he's worried that this is like some weird number game that all those people are just gonna like rabidly turn into (laughs) like listless sloths honestly if they if they wanted to be subsidized by the government for being unemployed 
they should just become a post-media columnist. <laughs> 35% of the labor force is on curb, but they don't say what percentage of the labor force are post-media columnists. <laughs> well, like, serious point here, like, think of everybody in the hospitality industry that's fucked. Um, think of anybody who works in a non-essential job that, you know, had to furlough its staff. I know people at the radio station I used to work at, there's a bunch of temporary layoffs. There's one guy running the station. I mean, I think they have three employees there now, but two of them are, you know, they've applied to the CERB or CERB or CURB, whatever you want to call it. Um, like it's the only option for a lot of people. Um, Mm -hmm. So here's here's the the kicker and the the thing that he kept bringing up after people started yelling at him on Twitter, um, as the CD Howe group suggests, the government could mandate that curb recipients accept an offer to return to work as long as the pay and conditions are not worse than they were pre-COVID. Um, how do you how do you measure that? <laughs> what's what's the unit of measurement you use for conditions being worse, and how do you enforce that? And what are you talking about? Why would the government <laughs> mandate that? It's like you have to prove that um, this job is not worse than the last job you had. And it's like, what was what was the last job? Like, what if your last job was highly dangerous? What like, is that? What does this have to do with anything? It's just it's you know it's just means testing. It's like another another way that yeah. um, a hack columnist can go. Well, they have to pass my test. Like, why? <laughs> why do they have to do that? The, wouldn't that be more expensive to implement than, you know, one or two people scamming the government at a $2,000 a month? Not that Ivy Man would know because he very much has a job, but <laughs> you do, in fact, have to attest when you apply to CERB that you are not currently working. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And on top yeah. of that, like if you make you make a thousand dollars in the four week period while you're on curb, they'll pull you off. Like you're done if you make more than a thousand bucks. That's on their website. I don't know why he didn't check that before he wrote this column, but he was too busy getting mad about poor people getting money. <laughs> so, funny. or not just poor people, like just anybody not working or anyone. Well, so, well, there are some people that. Presumably, he's okay with the government giving money to small business owners, (laughs) job creators, his his bosses, his bosses who line his pockets. Um, Oh, yeah. So, boys, mm, the reaction to this post on the Internet was uh, I'm going to call it the Internet because I, I didn't check Facebook and I didn't check Instagram. But I did check Twitter, which is a great, um, great stomping grounds for uh, people using human beings as punching bags. Um, and John <laughs> had best. a day to remember. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you guys have a favorite response to John's piece, but there's one um, by a man by the name of Ethan Cox, who's the founder of Ricochet Media. Um, he. <laughs> 
it got retweeted by John Iveson, so it's actually like fair play. Um, He wrote, working on a measured rebuttal to that John Iveson piece. And then it just says, John Iveson is a callous shit weasel over and over again. (laughs) I don't know why it makes me laugh. Yeah, well, well, did you read the piece he wrote in Ricochet? Um, Like as a rebuttal? Yes. Yes, it was very solid. Very good. And in addition to calling him a callous shit weasel, he calls him a boomer hack, <laughs> which is great. No, that but rules. my my favorite is definitely uh, Tanara Yelland, who we mentioned earlier, who tweeted a screenshot of the headline w- alongside a photo of a guillotine. It's just it's such a bad take. And and you're right that it, it kind of sounds like someone's like, you have to write about this. And he's like, OK, because his only defense on his Twitter feed was um, I will point out the words lavish and slacker do not appear in the article um, for the many, many, many who only read the headline. It doesn't question the need for emergency relief. It suggests it be wound down like that's an actual defense that it's the words lavish and slacker only appear in the headline of your piece when the headline totally reflects the ideas contained within the piece. Yeah. Like, like the, that, that's no, like he's throwing the, whoever wrote the headline under the, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A- assuming, like assuming he didn't write the headline himself, which is also a possibility when you're a columnist, but well, that's if, such if a that's such a cop out. With a, and yeah, if, if yeah. he had such a problem with it, I don't know. Not to speak for you, Eric, but like, why didn't they change the headline? Yeah, if he actually had a real issue with the headline, he could go. Don't publish that. Like he's not he's not like some you know intern that's just trying to you know stay afloat. Um, he, <laughs> when I was, when I was reporting at, at the, at that community radio station, I got in a ton of trouble cause I wouldn't put my byline on a, a story about the radio player Canada app. Do you guys remember that when they tried to make <laughs> the radio an app? Remember how that was really successful? Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, the, the station re- wanted to publish a piece talking about this, uh, crazy innovative new app that was going to change the game. The, it's going to change the radio late landscape forever. And I'm like, I'm not putting my name on that. I was able to get my name off of it. By saying well, no. Well, that's why you need a u- union. At the Medicine Hat News, as part of our collective agreement, we didn't have to put our names on anything if we didn't want to, and we didn't have to explain why. Which reminds me, in Ethan's piece, he mentions that they announced these pay cuts and closing of 15 community newspapers that you mentioned up top while at the same time they're taking millions of dollars in government subsidies. Now the pay cuts don't apply to unionized employees like at the Toronto sun. Uh. So (sighs) national post people who voted against unionization, who thought Kevin Lieben had their best interests in mind. Maybe you're getting that now. I don't, I don't know how much money you guys think a community paper takes to run. It's not unsubstantial, but it's not $6 million. The money that they were given could have very easily 
covered <laughs> a majority of the papers that they're closing down. They they released a press release today um, talking about how sad they were about not being able to provide these communities with local coverage. And it's like, it's that's not your focus. Your focus is on the bottom line. The community was something that you took from. Don't pretend that you're sad. You, you did this to save your ass. And, you know, six months from now when, when the numbers are down again and people that can't have an active interest in your company are worried there's going to be a couple more papers on the chopping block. I can think of one way they might be able to find money for community news if they're so concerned. You want to know what it is? <laughs> Let's hear it. Well, they could fire John Iveson. <laughs> they <laughs> could f- fire Conrad Black. They could fire Matt Gurney. They could, <laughs> what about uh, Jordan Peterson? Yeah, they could not rent out the fifth floor of their Toronto office building <laughs> for, for him. A man in a coma in Russia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and just to be clear, uh, if you read that Candleland piece, which you should if you haven't, because it's very in depth, and Sean Grek is a great reporter who worked at the National Post for years. Um, as Sean Craig says in the piece that you should all read if you haven't, because it's very in-depth reporting, Jordan Peterson is being paid, we don't know how much money, for a top-secret project that he has the entire fifth floor <laughs> of the Post Media building to work on. <laughs> Sorry. Some I just, sort of I just realized that he's probably going to block the sun with transphobia. Beef pills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean he hasn't started selling nootropics and like all his friends have <laughs> literally all his friends. Like literally oh. intellectual dark web, yeah. They all sound some this... sort of National Post Mary Brown's chicken nootropics. What about like a kettlebell shaped like bailout money? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i I mean the point is fire all your shithead calmness maybe keep a few of them on and hire some people who aren't shit and use the money saved on paying barbara k to spread her hate speech (laughs) and invest it in community news Okay, let's uh let's do the last four graphs because because Jeremy Jeremy's right these these four suck. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, we could we could talk about them. I was looking at one, but yeah, let's go on. So let's. I'm gonna skip the first two words, which are no kidding, because he's he's following up a quote from the prime minister. Because uh, number one rule at at the post is uh, treat the prime minister like an idiot, um, unless he's which a, I mean sometimes yeah unless he's a conservative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the direct relief measures are now estimated to cost $145 billion, and he's not done yet. The constant outflow of benefit federal dollars has done Trudeau's popularity no harm. His approval ratings are the highest they've been in three years, according to an, a recent Angus Reid Institute poll. And he's like, in this, in this relief measures thing, he doesn't complain at all about the oil and gas bailout, because that would upset the base. Um... 
but he is more comfortable being an almsgiver than a closed fisted treasurer. <laughs> yeah, no yes, shit. Yes, we are aware of the challenge. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I wonder why people vote for people who offer them something as opposed to those who want to take it away. So, but he is more comfortable being an almsgiver than a closed fisted treasurer. Yes, we are aware of the challenges in terms of incentives, and we are trying to ensure that the industries that need workers will be able to have them, he said at his daily press briefing, without elaborating. (laughs) Even if it's not clear to the Prime Minister, pressures are growing on the Liberal government to take action to ensure its generous safety net for workers does not become a summer hammock. (laughs) Sorry. Every, Every last graph. Has to has to leave you with the dumbest idea. It's like it's a rule. Um, I th- I think the lead is the dumbest part. Of it. <laughs> like you just imagine thinking like you can buy a, a summer hammock with curb benefits, but like <laughs> you're right, you're right. The first rule of opposition politics is to draw a contrast with the government in the most extreme manner possible. <laughs> like yeah, like, like si- sorry, sorry, John. I'm gonna need a citation there. Why don't we just get the leader of ISIS to be the opposition leader then? Like, why is why are we stopping at the concert? Like, what are you talking about? Look, this Baghdadi guy. I don't agree with all his politics, but but he holds the government to account. Yeah, <laughs> extreme. Okay, I I'm gonna say summer hammock is is pretty bad too, but uh, but again, it's just like yeah. Corbello's piece. Um, where she thinks that she's going to leave you with a, a little nugget that'll just stay with you until you're you're in, in the bathtub or uh, or pacing your hallways or um, lying in bed staring at the ceiling because you're all stuck inside. This is dumb. These these last graphs are terrible. And whoever's whoever's suggesting that this is the way you're supposed to end your column with a dumb idea. I, Stop. I really like the no kidding. The direct relief measures are now estimated to cost <laughs> a b- one point one hundred and forty five billion. And he's not done yet. Just like, you know, just sick sitcom promo voice. Fucking like the prime minister is like Steve Urkel or Scrooge McDuck hoard, hoarding the, the hundred and forty five billion dollar of Serb money or something like that. Yeah. Anyways, this piece sucks. Uh, John Iveson, yeah. do better. I Please. Yeah, and you have. You have. I mean, I find your columns to be generally boring, but they're not absolutely repugnant. No, no, they're not usually this shitty. Yeah. I mean, the, the piece about uh, the, the protests in February sucked, but... Um, yeah, but I was I was going through his archives from like the past ten years, and his takes have been pretty consistently middle of the road. I obviously I didn't do an exhaustive like deep dive into the John Iveson archives, but from yeah. from what I gleaned until relatively recently, he was just that sort of like middle of the road you know, sort of insider analyst type. That isn't my cup of tea, but mm-hmm. it's not. Well, sometimes you just got to take the gloves off, man. Yeah. Sometimes you get told by your boss to generate outrage. I honestly like 
part of the cynical part of me thinks that someone is like, we need something that's going to piss off Twitter. Um, and it, it worked if that was their plan. Maybe that's, that's expecting too much from post media. Cause they can't, they can't sell ads. Yeah. Andrew McLeod can't tie his own shoes. Yeah. They, they're I, I literally so bad at being a newspaper. <laughs> I just think I just, I'm, I'm pretty cynical about it that I think they're cynical. I think there's just this void. They do it. They get criticized. They just keep doing it. They stick to their line. The people who listen, listen, own the libs. Well, I got to be honest. That's, that's the first Iveson piece I've read in months. Um, and that's, that's proof that it worked. So, um, I mean, it's a click based business, right? They can, they can make more money off of ads if they are getting a certain amount of people in. And I mean that Mary Brown's chicken deal isn't paying for itself. So, um, you got to put chicken on the table. The question that I always have is, are they just trying to game us for clicks? And if so, by discussing this column, are we giving them what they want? Right? Isn't that always the dilemma? Yeah, yeah. It's like this is if that was the intended goal of this column, it succeeded because it was trending in Canada, which you can't say for all of Iveson's pieces. They're typically yeah, he's got like four hundred comments on his on his post. And <laughs> And they're all really, really, really mean. <laughs> like, like, I've never seen a National Post comment section this anti-National Post. And it's because it hits, it hit mainstream Twitter and people are like, fuck this guy and fuck this terrible opinion. The Iveson piece was just so like, just it punches down in the worst possible ways. And it, it is just that, as we've said, my boss has told me to write this or maybe maybe he believes this i don't know it's it's bad it deserves what it got it doesn't matter it doesn't matter either way right like part of manufacturing consent mm-hmm. is that you don't need to be told what perspective to convey because you know what the range of respectable opinion is and in the post media bubble, you know how narrow that is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know that's constantly moving further right. Yeah, yeah. And so if this is this is a, a bellwether for things to come, I mean, I'm really looking forward to his next um, set of columns because because <laughs> we always need content for this show. Like you know, this was like that time that people on the left were mean to him, and he realized that they're the problem yet he should join the reactionary right wing well we're gonna do it did you guys read anything good this week um i mean beyond that ethan cox piece making fun of uh iveson's piece um that that was my favorite piece this week i think and that happened this morning so um, I don't know if anything else topped that. But I mean, I think we did throughout the course of the show point to some outlets that are doing good reporting 
mm-hmm. when it comes mm-hmm. to holding media outlets, other media outlets accountable. And that is Candleland and Ricochet, uh, neither mm-hmm. of which are based on the corporate model of journalism. They're both dependent to varying degrees on support from listeners. And mm-hmm. of course, Candleland has their uh, advertisers like HelloFresh and FreshBooks and you know all the classics. Yeah, I would just maybe give a general shout out to all the media outlets that aren't beholden to a corporate agenda. I mean, we talk so much about post media and why it's trash, but there are outlets like the Aboriginal People's Television Network, who friends yeah. of, friend of the show Charlotte Mark Jacobs works at Press Progress, Ricochet, Candleland, Passage, Rank and File, Rank and File. Yes, Emily Leadham is, uh, in my view, one of the country's great labor reporters. Yeah, she rules. Yeah. So there are people doing good work in the Canadian media and you should look to support them uh, if you have the means to, if you're not on curb like some of us, me. Follow us on Twitter if you like our show at Big Shiny Takes. Also, if you haven't already, subscribe to us on your podcatcher. And hey, why not give us a five-star rating? Even if you think that we're only worth four stars, just give us the next star. What's to you? Give us five stars. We made it onto Apple Podcasts, even though Jeremy said that John K. fucks his mom. <laughs> <laughs> so if that's not worth five stars, I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. No, that is premium content. We should have put that behind us. <laughs> this is a bonus episode. It's five seconds long. It's just you saying that over and over again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, we should do that. We should make a, a TikTok. Yeah, there we go. we got to promote the pod. There we go. <laughs> okay, boys. All right. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.